Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk About Art Baby. My name is Ingrid Wilson and I am the creative producer of an Arts Northern Rivers initiative, Northern Rivers Creative, an online directory for creative practitioners working within the Northern Rivers region. This three-part series is delivered in partnership with local photography and equipment house, Studio Tropico, made possible by the Australian Government's Regional Arts Fund, which supports the arts in regional and remote Australia. Arts Northern Rivers respectfully acknowledges Banjalung, Yagul and Githubal country, the lands we work and create on. We appreciate the unique and vibrant array of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists and cultural practitioners from here and living here. So, let's talk about art, baby. Let's dive straight in, talk all about art and today all about all things gender. So we are augmenting the current self exhibition here at the beautiful Grafton Regional Gallery. And self is a exhibition of six local artists who have each submitted work responding to their experiences of challenging gender from social, political or cultural perspectives. So featuring the work of Stephen Garrett, Joe Swepson, Xanthi Dobby, Fabian Purtzell, Antoinette O'Brien and Laith McGregor. And I'm joined today by two of the exhibiting artists, Stephen Garrett and Joe Swepson. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Let's definitely give them a round of applause. Um, so I would just like, I've been so lucky to have the experience to talk to both of you and learn from both of you. But for anyone who's tuning into this podcast, watching this podcast or here today in the live audience, I'd like you to introduce yourself and talk about how you and your practice has responded to this exhibition theme. And I'm going to hand over to you first, Stephen. Well, okay. Um... I don't know if I responded so much to the theme. Um, I didn't even know the title of the exhibition, actually. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was, well, I think initially when we were talking, it was around the idea of gender. Yeah, the, ex the title came after. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and because of the tight kind of time frame or mm. calendar from proposal to exhibition, um, I generated works that from a series that is ongoing and scaled them up to the kind of scale that I wanted them always to be at in a kind of hanging tapestry. And in terms of the works themselves as part of this series, it's probably my most autobiographical work and not necessarily the horse being the self-portrait. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea in terms of um, uh, unrequited love and um, gay romance and gay, I suppose, ways in which this relationship, um, I suppose, unfolded and affected me over a number of years and this work directly responds to that experience. Um, and so in terms of it, it fits the, the self um, because 
you know, the 20 works in this series, um, and these are just two of them, each are different aspects of, I suppose, an emotional roller coaster I went through um, in this relationship, um, both from the kind of pure love through to pure rage um, and destruction. Rage and destruction is interesting. And I want to come back to the larger series of works that you've touched on and unpack that. Just realising now that it's kind of an interesting question asking you, Joe, how your work responded to the exhibition theme because it, what your work in, inspired the entire exhibition to exist in the first place. So maybe if you could just tell the audience and the listeners a bit about you and your practice and we'll start with that. Yeah, I mean, that's a... Um, it's pretty flattering to be um, to be told that your work has inspired an exhibition. So um, yeah, I feel really um, yeah, I feel really really lucky to be able to um, talk about it because um, you know my um, identity as an artist is um, you know really based around the notion of being non-binary and, um, and that being my gender identity. And so all of my work is, um, comes from that place of not existing within the binary of she or he, existing in that, um, in that place of non-binary. And it's relatively, you know, it's a, it's a recent kind of um, term, really, you know, pronouns a few years ago were not something that, you know, was discussed. And so being able to show work, which really highlights the mm. kind of the, the, um, the binary structure of gender and um, be able to really explore it was, yeah, um, that, that is my practice, mm. you know, and, and all of my practice comes from that place of wanting to create um, a non-binary lens, you know, wanting to show the world through um, a lens that doesn't exist within these kind of male or female, but in this non-binary place, so yeah. Mm. Well, it definitely showed me that. So I've learned a lot about pronouns speaking to both of you and doing my research into this exhibition. Uh, and like you've said, Joe, they're new terms. And so is the word self. And language plays a big part of this exhibition and the inspiration for this exhibition. Self as a term wasn't commonly used until the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And the, the emergence of pronouns now I understand that there's 52. And it's still really easy to confuse these. Um, even though it's embedded in my brain, it, we still slip up. Um, when, Joe, when did you associate with using they and them? When did you start identifying with those pronouns and when did they become accessible to you? So um, probably about five years ago. So I went to a conference, which was actually part of um, a writer's festival and there was a theorist who was there and um, the theorist was talking about, um, you know, kind of gender as being something that's 
constructed. Mm -hmm. And that, um, you know, if we look at the construction of gender, then we look at the language around that and the kind of the etymology of, of gendered language. And that, um, you know, she and her, or him and, you know, he, and that there was this great space in between for, you know, um, for pronouns that challenged that, that actually were they and them, or z and zer, or, um, and it just like, um, it just sunk in and it was just immediate. And so I immediately started identifying as non-binary and I immediately went out and told everyone that my pronouns had changed and it was like, um, you know, it was like coming out, but better, you know, <laughs> because suddenly there was, um, you know, I had never fitted within the, the structures of the kind of the confines of of a she and her and um western language is very restricted in that yes mm. and and very set up to um to define who you were but my identity was um was much more fluid than that and so being able to kind of um yeah i guess self-identify as non-binary and you know the um the only time that it has been really tricky is um, with my family. Mm. Like that's the only time when they kind of, um, and I do as well, slip back into kind of identifying my gender mm. within, you know, what it is, you know, kind of female assigned at birth. Because um, I think that's the thing about pronouns is that there are so many and that it is so individual and that you can't make an assumption from the you know outside about what someone's gender is mm -hmm. you actually need to allow them the space to kind of mm -hmm. you know um identify themselves and we kind of we do get it wrong you know like mm -hmm. even sometimes in the workplace if i reference something like i can misgender myself you know <laughs> like i think that's a really important part of um of discussions around pronouns is that it's like, it's okay to get it wrong. Yeah, you know? you've taught me that. I think I was putting a lot of pressure on myself in this, because I'm, I'm not an expert and I, I, I am though, and you've boosted me with that confidence as well, Stephen, uh, because my experience is just as valid in this conversation as both of yours. Um, what pronouns do you use? Poof. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I've, saw, I've seen that on your Instagram bio, actually. Is it he, him, they, put? Um, I, I would be he. Biologically, I'm he. Um, but I've used they um, probably since I was about 11. Wow. Um, not because it was um, a thing in terms of pronouns back then, um, but it was... And I used to get in trouble for it in my English um, creative writing, what we, we had to do in high school. Oh, they I would say it, it's not grammatically correct. Yeah, and I always used to, I like use instead of he or she, it was they. It just was a, it was a natural. natural kind of thing. And my Mr. Schmidt, who was my English teacher um, and was German, um, used to get really cross with me. Um, and I don't know if it has something to do with, I also, you know, in 
first saw me in the school had to study Latin. Um, and I think it may have been something from Latin in terms of the way um, the feminine and the masculine is used. Uh, and I think as a kind of easy way for me to neutralize that was to use they um, in English. Okay, so language inspired you to start using they? I, 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 I can't remember, but I think it would certainly be something in the Latin which we had to learn, which I hated, which is that ironic because these are, uh, <laughs> this whole series was all um, titled in Latin. Um, but, you know, biologically, I look in the mirror and identify as male. But metaphysically, in terms of, you know, the, the self that exists within the skin, I would be completely gender neutral. I don't, when, if I closed my eyes and just found that self, I don't identify it with biology. My consciousness isn't biological. My physical appearance is biological, but there's a kind of self within that which doesn't exist in that binary. It just is. It's not assigned. It, it's it's me, but that's not because of the fact that I'm in a male skin. There's there's another self which, yeah, I've never kind of understood okay. to be male or female. You sound very strong from a young age, though, to kind of back yourself in that uh, understanding, which I think is, is that unique? Um, I mean, Joe, did you associate with a, or understand your gender from a young age? No, I just knew that the um, identity that I was supposed to and of exist within as a she and a her was just never right and um, and was a source of like great discomfort to kind of be referenced as female because as Stephen said my kind of um, my lit my consciousness was not um, a she and so no for me it was a very powerful moment of kind of realizing that um, there was a, um, there was this kind of, you know, um, breakdown of the Western system of how we classify gender and that there was a way for me to describe my um, kind of, you know, the, the physiological experience of my body in this world is non-binary. I mean, my lived experience is as a woman mm. and I'm not transitioning so I'm not trans so I'm in this place of um yeah of this non-fixed mm. kind of identity so it was yeah it was very very powerful and, and would you say like, that you're still learning are you still on that journey oh yeah definitely um you know it's um to be really honest, it's a battle I choose to have or not choose to have because it's a really big conversation for people. You know, in the workplace, I just get seen as a she. And so I just get referenced continuously as a she. And so I really do choose the times to have the conversation and mm -hmm. to, um, to kind of 
um, say that's not how I identify, like my identity is non-binary and I would prefer if you use pronouns that were appropriate to, um, to my identity. Um, but it's not something that you, you can sit down and have that conversation with everyone, you know? Yeah, like we're here today having this conversation which is completely awesome because I think we are at a point where um, it is becoming mm. more of our common language. Mm. And, and it's, well, I mean, you've both shown me that it's okay to be open about that as well. I think without open conversations like this, we're never going to understand change or be open to learning change because uh, we're scared to learn it. And we've been we've been like um, educated in this system of this kind of this Western system of classification, you know, which is a binary. You are either one or you are the other. You can't be an and, you know, yeah. and to to exist in that space. Um, yeah, it does challenge people. And it's like it does. It really does. People really don't understand. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to dive into how your work have impacted me because I was one of the people that we're referring to in this conversation that didn't understand and I now, I now realize that that has is a reflection of of me like when I witnessed your work Joe for the first time and I just want to pause and thank you for practicing art because you triggered this aha moment within me that I feel was really late, you know, and I look back in hindsight now, I'm like, why didn't I have this ideology from the start? Um, but yeah, your work just allowed me to look at my own actions. I had someone close to me with gender diversity and I didn't understand it. So my initial reaction was just, to back away mm. and remove myself from that situation. Um, but when I was confronted with your art, the lipstick projections, uh, it just allowed me to, I mean, it's a durational work and it evokes a feeling within the viewer, definitely. Um, and yeah, it, I just really had a personal reaction to your work. And I wonder when you were creating this work, did you intend that in the viewer? Did you, did you have the viewer's intention in mind? Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> oh, they, oh, they, oh, they. Um, <laughs> um, this was a really, really big work and it was, um, it was always with the viewer in mind, okay. but it was also very much about the self. Like mm. there is an argument that is going on in this work. Mm. There is an argument with lipstick and it was like, who's going to win the argument? You know, um, it, it, it didn't, I didn't know the end result when I started the work. I just knew that I wanted to work with lipstick. Lipstick is a totem of femininity and it is used in the performance of gender and that, is really important, I think, when kind of discussing um, identity and self and things not being fixed and, and my own personal kind of expression of, um, of identity. And so I, I, I knew that I wanted to use lipsticks because lipstick is used in the performance of gender. It's like one of the, the, the key kind of um, 
you know, kind of acts that, um, that you go through to kind of declare your gender status. Mm -hmm. And um, so I initially put a call out for lipsticks and it was during COVID and the only requirement was that the lipsticks had to have been used. So they had to have been used in the performance of gender. And because it was COVID and everyone was cleaning out their stocks and their bathrooms and their storerooms, there were just lipsticks coming from everywhere. There were lipsticks being dropped into the studio. It went out on social media. I had all of my family members collecting lipsticks from all of their workmates. There were lipsticks that I would drive and collect and I ended up with just like literally hundreds of used lipsticks. Mm. And so the process of getting to the end result, which is this just kind of, you know, application over application. Yeah, it didn't start there. It started with me um, wanting to use destruction as a form of of deconstruction mm. to kind of understand this this thing this lipstick this this performativity of gender and um and then i watched um a really incredible um performance a samuel beckett play called not i and i won't go into um into the performance but he describes this play, he describes the mouth actually as being, um, as being an organ of emission, that that's all it does. It's just this organ that emits kind of air or, you know, words or, and I was like, that's actually not how I see it. Like the mouth is this organ of gender, you know, and this kind of, um, this site of, of really kind of, um, yeah, this really gendered site. And so I kind of sat down one day with all of the lipsticks laid out and, um, you know, really high quality filming of the lipsticks and just kind of lo-fi filming of my mouth. And I just sat there and applied every single one of those donated used lipsticks and um, I didn't know what it was going to look like because I didn't have a mirror and I didn't see what was happening. And the end result was, um, yeah, it was really, really um, something else, something yeah, beyond cool. what I knew I was doing, you know. So an hour and 45, right? That's yeah. how long it took you to apply all the lipsticks. Yes. I think the durational aspect of it was subliminally expanded for me because I was working in the gallery at the time and I could see this bucket of lipsticks building and building and without an idea of what they were going to be used for, finally when I saw the work, it just enhanced that moment for me. Um, so did duration form a part of your yep. concept yep. or it just happened to take that long? No, it was a part of my concept. Like I've been really influenced by um, durational artists mm. like um, Francis Assis and some of the, you know, um, some of the, you know, really quintessential performance based durational works. Um, and so I knew that it was going to be a durational work. Um, I didn't know how much I was going to need to edit it down. Mm -hmm. um, but that 
process of applying every single lipstick that had already touched another person's mouth and had already been used in the performance of their gender, like I really wanted to, um, yeah, I really wanted the repetition of that and the absurdity of that and the kind of, um, yeah, to really, um, to see what the outcome would be because I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know that the material of lipstick like it doesn't absorb, it just spreads. And so each one kind of, I didn't know it was just spreading further and further because, you know, I've, I, I know the, the, the shape. And does the durational work comment on the duration of your experience? Because that's how I definitely took it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something you can't escape. It's mm. really difficult to look at. It's everywhere it's all over my lips i mean i've edited out all of the points where i was gagging and where the lipsticks were like melting under the lights and yeah. kind of you can view going. moments in your work where you're you're uncomfortable but i think that's so integral because it makes the viewer uncomfortable and it's so obvious how uncomfortable it makes you to perform this gendered act and i love what you say when you're speaking about this work that gender is an act not a fact mm and needs to be performed in order to exist. Like, if we stop performing these acts, then actually gender ceases to exist. It's, mm -hmm. it's something that we act out on, yeah. Which is, um, you know, that's, that's a, a theorist, um, you know, that's Judith Butler, I think, who has coined that mm -hmm. expression. So she's very, very heavily influential mm -hmm. throughout my kind of, I guess, um, my, my pedagogy years. Yeah. I love that you're looking at Stephen when you keep mentioning these artworks that have referenced you because <laughs> Stephen educated you and you're so lucky to have had that experience. Has he had an influence oh, on you God. like the you've had an influence on me? Influence, yes. Um, you know, really, really influential. You know, there was. Um, we were really fortunate as a You're university so group. Yeah. Um, you know, Stephen got us a grant, um, and so we were able to travel to Italy, and um, we went to the Venice Biennale, and so I was exposed to contemporary works on a scale that I just did not understand was even possible. And um, yes, we went to the Uffizi Gallery, and. Um, and I got to see, you know, Artemisia Gentileschi's work. And, um, you know, Stephen sat down for, I don't know, what felt like an hour and talked to me about this work. And, you know, it's this Renaissance painting that is just like huge scale, just, you know, um, you know, is is awe inspiring, but actually, it's um, it's this like female revenge image. You know, this is Judith slaying Holofernes. Like this is like the beginnings of, kind of, um, you know, a challenge to the institution. You know, and um, yeah, it was really, really influential experience and really in influential um, conversation that made me want to. Um, do something to challenge these institutions yeah. and these kind of um, these constructs that we are working within in this kind of Western world that that, that we're all part of, you know. And um, 
so yeah definitely definitely influential yeah you're very lucky steve and i have gone through post-grad undergrad in metropolitan areas and <laughs> haven't learned what i've learned from you in the small time that i've spent with you working on this exhibition that's probably not true but <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind but it's probably not true um i actually remember joe talking about this work in second year um, as an she, idea. As an idea. Yeah. Wow. She says, I have this idea. Um, so it, it's, it's really fabulous to actually see it finally kind of realised and come to life. That's incredible. Did your educational experience, did, were you lucky to have exposure to anyone that's been a, a mentor to you like you have been to Joe or at me oh, as well? Phenomenally. Um, people that, you know, go back to when I was in primary school, teachers I had who, you know, nurtured me and nurtured my ambitions to study music and study art and kind of that classical kind of liberal arts education. Um, and not so much through high school, though they were, that was just you know, high school's a dreadful, dreadful experience, I think, for most people. Um, but, but, and certainly uh, the years I uh, did my PhD at Monash and worked at Monash and the collective group of artists that I worked with um, and studied with, you, it's, it's a kind of gift that sometimes you're given in life to be able to kind of cross paths with these people. And so there's been many, many people who I've, I've spent deep, deep, slow time with, um, who have, you know, allowed me to make the work that I get to make or go the places I've gotten to go. Um, and have those conversations which, you know, sometimes, and sometimes they're conversations that are had which you don't think much of at the time, but maybe five, ten years later, twenty years later, fifty years later, <laughs> um, yeah, that the, the echo of them and the kind of way they can filter through a life is, that's, I think, part of the beauty of education um, or of being able to listen um, or be willing to listen um, in that kind of exchange. Um, I've certainly learned just as much from my students as I hope they have from me. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, that's part of the pleasure of education is it, it's not a one directional street. It's actually an exchange. It's a conversation. And that conversation is just as important to my education and my sense of being in the world and my understanding of art and what I do as it is for them. Mm. I consider Joe lucky in that sense because you're open to change as opposed to uh, constructed educational system which is this is the curriculum and it doesn't change it sounds like you allow that space to grow and adapt within that it's art that is art it's not brain surgery <laughs> you know no one is going to die it's you know maybe if you're learning 
how to, you know, open someone's brain up. Mm -hmm. It's it's very structured and it doesn't change because <laughs> um, you don't want it to change. Um, but art art is a reflection of the time and the culture and the society in which it's made. So it's adaptive, it's mutable, it has to be. It can't, thank God we don't paint impressionist paintings anymore. You know, how awful would that be? Like, you know, a world full of Monet's. <laughs> I mean, this exhibition is vastly digital. So the emergence of that as well, you need to adapt to yeah. the emerging technology. And every artist from day dot to now has always used the available media and technology at their disposable, disposal, um, not disposable. And so, you know, we think of technology now in terms of digital, but there's been many forms of technology of since bronze casting 10,000 years ago, um, all the way through to today. So it's, we often think that art is these kind of sealed moments in time, which kind of leapfrog, you know, through history. But we don't often think about what was happening culturally or within the technology at the time, which enabled those artists to make the work they made. The major inspiration. Yeah. Mm. Have you ever had an experience with another person's artwork, like I have mentioned that I had with Joe's? Uh, many. I've I've cried in front of artworks. Um, I've laughed in front of artworks. Mainly Mike Carr's performance work always <laughs> always made me laugh because um, they're ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the reason why I went to art school was I was standing, I was in the National Gallery in London. I'd been living in Europe for a couple of years, like many of us did when we were in our early 20s, in the um, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And um, I was a really, really kind of, and I, I hadn't actually, through high school and um, in my first university degree, I actually didn't study art. We didn't have art at high school, um, sadly, because um, there was only two boys. I went to an all-boys school, and there was only two of us who wanted to do art, so they cancelled it. Um, so, so I, I kind of, you know, I studied music instead, and um, but always made art. I, I kind of used to make things in the backyard and I was always sketching. And I'd been living overseas uh, for a couple of years and I was in the National Gallery in London and I was a really big fan of Egon Schiele, um, who was an expressionist artist, a Viennese expressionist artist um, from 1918 to 1928. And he did this self-portrait and it was so remarkable to me um, to see it for the first time kind of in front of me. I'd only ever seen a photo of it. And it was that moment where it's, I decided that I would leave Europe, go home and uh, go to art school. Wow. 
and I was, I think, 29. Okay, so major ripple effect. And it's interesting that both you and Joe have mentioned you've had these huge moments for you in terms of your inspiration abroad. And traveling is such a big impact on, because that's where you're going to see contemporary art and challenging contemporary art, which we don't generally find in regional areas. Um, how has your experience traveling uh, impacted your understanding of art in, in terms of bringing that back to a regional setting? I, I couldn't imagine making art without having traveled mm -hmm. or traveling and understanding what was happening. On a global um, scale. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and it doesn't mean you have to necessarily travel to make art. Of course you don't. Um, you just need many, to look beyond your area. People don't um, get that experience. But it's, again, it's being aware and being open and looking beyond, you know, the, the small bubble in which we all live in. Mm. And, you know, again, I was very, very fortunate to be able to travel from, even from when I returned and went to art school, I was very fortunate to win different scholarships and prizes, which constantly kept taking me overseas. Um, and then when I worked for Monash, I used to spend half of my year um, in Europe teaching, um, which, you know, again, allowed me to keep traveling and keep seeing um, and Asia. And um, I think, you know, for me, as I said earlier, art is a conversation. And sometimes the conversation is between the artist and the work they're making. And it's a kind of silent conversation. But when that work kind of gets taken out into the world, regionally, within a city, within a Biennale, then that conversation kind of grows because other people are looking at that work. And again, it may be a silent exchange between the viewer and the artwork and that encounter, or it may be something like this, where it's actually literally a conversation we're having about art. Um, but, it, but it's that sense that you never know where or how art shifts and changes and filters into people's lives and what that might do, whether it's you encountering Joe's art for the first time or Joe encountering Artemisia's work or me encountering Egon Schiele's work. It, it, it's, it's part of the subtle beauty of art is that it has an impact and sometimes that impact may be felt as in the negative or it's or sometimes the impact is in the positive you know i think people complain about art probably more than most things in life um that's good that means we're starting the conversation <laughs> but, but it is a good thing because it means that whether people love it or hate it it's having an impact. They're yeah. paying attention. Yeah. For anyone who's listening, <laughs> can you explain this beautiful work that's backing us right now? <laughs> the work's called albedo, uh, which is a Latin term 
uh, which it's one of those words which has a kind of multifarious meanings. In its, in its kind of purest form, um, it means to purify, to expel. And it, it's an alchemical term. So when they're trying to turn, you know, lead into gold and they put it through saltpeter to purify the lead first, the, the term's actually called albedo, which is a transformative term. So it's to transform from one to another. But it also means to expel uh, waste. Um, it also means white. Um, it means light. It has all these other kind of associations around the term. Um, this was actually the first work I thought of in this series, but it was the last work I made in the series, um, in the 20 works. Um, all the works were made in Venice um, and then I produced them um, post in lockdown during COVID because I'd just come back from Italy and was due to go back over and then COVID happened. So all the post work had to be done here. Um, and in lots of ways, this, this, uh, this, the final work, which is a, a white horse pissing um, inside um, the Palazzo Grimali um, and on the second floor. And it, it really, for me, summed up the melancholy um, in which I was feeling um, at the end of this relationship. At the end of the relationship with the entire body of work, the series? No, no, with the man I was in love with who wow. um, this work is all based on. I didn't know that a horse piercing could be so aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so beautiful. I've been sitting here looking at the water reflecting at the bottom of this work and the detail in this is incredible and the scale that we're looking at it is integral to our the viewer's reaction to this. I know the answer to this question and I'm really excited to dive into this with you, but as I asked Joe before, do you ever have the viewer's uh, interaction with your work in mind when you're making it? No, I don't care. Amazing. Did you ever, did you always have that? Like, I, I know that I've, that's something I internally work at, but you so naturally have this ability to know that only you're doing for you and that matters. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about your work. Did you always have this incredible insider? Like, oh, like when I was, a, I was so terrified at art school. When I went to art school, I was just, I was terrified of, of. I don't know what I was terrified critiques. of. Critiques. Oh, critiques. <laughs> it was terrified. Critique. It was that sense of being terrified that I wouldn't be good enough, or I wouldn't make it, or or I was going to be stuck, like, in Newcastle, where I first went to art school, and thinking I've got to get out of here somehow. Like, you know, um, like, I think everyone does who lives in a regional town. No offence, Grafton. Um, <laughs> but, but it's, you know, when, when you want to, you know, bite the world, it's, it's, and I was so hungry, like, when I, because I'd given up my job, I'd given up everything 
to go to art school and, you know, you sacrifice a lot to go to art school. Um, and so I was so hungry and so scared at the same time of, of not... I was really ambitious um, and I wanted to be successful. Um, and, and so I cared really deeply for a long time initially. And then there's a point where you just come to that realization of it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what critics say. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't change my relationship with my practice or with the work I produce. Once the work is made, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, once it's up, it's up. So whether people, you know, burn it, like, it's, I can't stop that. Um, and why would I want to? Like, you know, it's... So I, I, I don't know when that happened, something happened, but I just stopped caring. And about, not about the work, you know, I care deeply about my work. I just don't care what anyone else thinks about. So the relationship with your work is very much that internal conversation yeah. that we mentioned before, rather than the artist-viewer conversation or any type of discomfort that um, some other works in this show definitely aim to disrupt. Yeah, and, and I, I've kind of thought about this, I don't know, it might be a conversation even Joe and I had many years ago around what should queer art look like? Mm. Um, should it be, should it maintain patriarchal systems, thereby being framed, looking a particular way? Um, you know, when you think about early feminist art um, or work coming out of the late 50s, 60s and then performance work in that period right through the 70s. You know, part of, part of the logic of those practices was to kind of almost undermine the systems in which those works would later be collected by and seen and, and exchanged by. You know, I, I think of Meat Joy, um, which is a performance work, early performance work by um, Carolee Schneeman. And you know, it's glorious and it's revolting and it's fabulous. Um, and it's all these people rolling around in uh, raw meat on the floor. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up. It's on YouTube. Um, and, but, but, you know, it's, it's one of those works where you think, you know, what should feminist art look like back then? And I kind of have that same question today, you know, as a gay artist, my, I don't make work which is gay, necessarily. Some of it is. Um, but it's more so, I think about that question, you know, what should queer art look like? You know, should it just be, should I just throw it on the floor? Why do I want to maintain patriarchal systems and standards if I don't support them anyway? You know, so it's, it's, I think, a question I think about a lot in terms of, you know, even, even I recently had an exhibition in Melbourne, which was part of this series, 
And I ended up not, I was going to frame the works and do all that, but in, in the end I stripped everything back to its rawest form um, to just have this kind of raw, clean edge on the work. Because I, I didn't want to present it in the way which would be kind of standardised mm -hmm. in that. I, I just wanted no distraction to the image in the end. And, and that was an issue. Your concepts start in the title, your concepts of dismantling this historical yeah, construct. The, the, the work, as much as I was dismantling a relationship, I was acutely aware that, you know, the reason why I wanted to shoot these within these different palazzo was because, you know, Venice is Disneyland. And it's a fabulous Disneyland, but it's Disneyland in the sense it's no one lives there. It's for tourists. These magnificent buildings are all empty and either decaying or being bought by wealthy people to have fabulous parties in. Um, but but, the, but it, it, they hark back to a time which was about power and wealth and privilege. And, you know, for me, desecrating these sites, having a horse piss on the floor or, you know, birds fighting or there's ones with horses fighting, you know, is a way of, I suppose, creating beautiful images anyway, but also desecrating the space and desecrating that history. You know, a lot of this series is, I don't think it's pornographic, other people may think it's pornographic, but it's men having sex with each other in these rooms. Um, very graphic um, images and and again it, it's these are the kind of and it's gay men having sex with each other not just men having sex um, so it's a way of changing that narrative and changing that history into a kind of subversion of what the classical history would have been um, again to place myself in the space of that history when I couldn't exist previously because we weren't allowed to be part of history as queer people. So part of me making this work is also me literally rewriting history going, I was here long before I actually was here. And that, for me, that's a really important part. And we see that probably at, at its most, I suppose, pure in lots of ways within indigenous, contemporary indigenous work, where indigenous artists are rewrite, not just reclaiming history, but rewriting that history. As it should have been written. Yeah. Mm. And it's interesting when you look at history versus contemporary versus future and I really want to dive now into the future of gender and the future of art, its role in gender. And like we spoke on at the start of this conversation, now I have the ability to jump onto your Instagram and reconfirm what your pronouns are. Re look at you're allowed to represent yourself in a digital world and claim your identity from that's and, and at times is your first interaction with someone. They're meeting you in a digital sense before they've met you in person. Um, 
So, and particularly you, Joe, you work with emerging technologies in your work, some augmented reality, and Xanthi Dolby, exhibiting artist in this show, is working with expanded reality as well. Um, what do you think the future of art and the technology that it's enabling can assist you in your message of, of oh, gender? Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, those emerging technologies or extended realities, augmented realities, like they just lend themselves so perfectly to gender because they just um, refuse stable categorization. You know, you, you see a work and then you hold your phone up to it and it augments and completely everything that you are looking at or you thought you were looking at has been destabilized and disrupted. So I just think the future of, um, technology and gender is just going to, yeah, just become this, this, this meshed kind of gorgeous other world. Mm. Um, so yes, I'm really, yeah, really excited by it. Mm. Really, really excited by it. Um, yeah. And I, and also I think interesting, like, um, you know, my pronouns now are on my email. So mm. a lot of my communication with people who I would not meet in my day to day life, like they will know something about me now through that digital communication. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I, I it doesn't think... matter how many times you email someone with your email signature and they spell your name wrong. So <laughs> I'm assuming they will still get your pronouns wrong, even though it's spelled out in front of them. But it's definitely a step in the right direction of just increasing awareness of how people want to be identified. Yeah, and, and, and that pronouns matter and yeah. that they're not um it's it's not just he or she mm -hmm. anymore um you have had an experience in this exhibition of viewers not initially knowing how to interact with your work and i think you showed them didn't you yeah it's um it's you know augmented reality which requires you to hold your phone up to a work and and view the work so you, so the work is being mediated kind of through your phone that's not something that um you know everyone knows how to do or despite can even the fact we've know... been using qr codes for a couple of years now people still don't understand the concept of it what, no. why is a qr code involved with yeah. this artwork how do i use this which is kind of what stephen was talking about you know we're, we're so accustomed mm -hmm. to the institution of the the art gallery being a certain kind of mm. um setup that to introduce something new, which is not actually new, a QR code is not that new, yeah. but to use that to then view art was like, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's pretty revolutionary. Yeah, and, and it's a way participatory as well. You're inviting the viewer to take a moment to dive deeper into your work. And yeah, well, they make a move in, yeah, in order yeah. to see it and activate yeah. it. Yeah, their, their kind of, um, their activation is engaging them with the work in a way that, um, you know, you don't just get from a, from a 2D image. Mm. Yeah. Do you think that that restricted interaction with your work would happen in a metropolitan gallery? Or, I, um, or do you think it's a regional barrier? I think it would depend on where you were in the metropolitan area. I think if you were going to some commercial galleries, you would probably encounter still people that 
don't want to engage with the work like that. They want to be passive and they want to have the work do everything kind of for them. You know, they want to look at the, the painting and the frame. Look at the, the pretty picture. The name oh. artist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and aesthetics to them means this kind of reference to beauty. So I think it would depend on where you were, but definitely in, um, in anywhere that's um, a metropolitan area, you're going to have, you know, a, a much broader Increased engagement, engagement yeah. and the array of people who are kind of regularly attending and being exposed to new technologies. And, you know, I think, um, you know, at the Biennale was the first time I'd seen work that was, um, you know, through headsets. So, you know, kind of completely virtual. Um, and, you know, that Biennale was a couple of years ago now. And so, you know, for me, it's pretty standard that you would go to a gallery and you would see these new emerging technologies. Mm. Um, but definitely in a regional area, it's still really breaking, you know, um, kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's breaking ground. Yeah. Stephen, having travelled and exhibited in so many wonderful locations, can you speak on the, some of the barriers that we experience in regional areas as artists who are exhibiting? TNT losing my work. <laughs> <laughs> so a few people know this, but this exhibition actually opened for a week, maybe two, without Stephen's work hanging here because TNT lost it. Now, this just wouldn't have happened in a metropolitan area. I, I think often, even when I'm talking with my colleagues and peers in Melbourne and Sydney or overseas, and, you know, you're... I'd say something like that, like... That oh, this happened? TNT lost the work for, like, eight days. And they're like, it's not possible. <laughs> yes. And it's like, yes, it is possible, because it went from Sydney to some buttfuck of beyond town, <laughs> and they lost it. And then, you know, it, even with tracking and tracing... Even with QR codes, tracking, technology, <laughs> yeah. it still happened. And, I don't think that's an uncommon thing. It shouldn't happen, but I think there is a kind of aspect of regionality where it's not that there's limited supply. You know, we all have um, posts where we can buy things online and have them shipped or work made. But it's, there's a, a limited number of suppliers, often in regional towns, where um, who can't necessarily print these works for me at this scale, so I have to go to a city um, in order to get that done. And um, so th there's things like that, or there may be certain art supplies as an artist that I can't just buy locally. Yeah. Um, because there's so few people who may want that particular brand or whatever it is, even at a hardware store. So again, you kind of go online to get those mm. things. Or, and even or, in online shopping, it's one to two days metropolitan, yeah, yeah, yeah. 10 so plus days for regional. There's a different kind of time frame that happens in a regional time, which is different to city time. Yeah, it is slow. Um, so, but in terms of, I think, you know, in terms of people, regional people looking at art, it, we also have to assume that they're engaged because they've come to look in the first place. Yeah. Um, they may not be engaged in the way that we want, you know, scanning a QR code. But for the fact that they came to look at art, mm. 
um, love it or hate it, um, they're, they're there. They're, they're engaging in culture. Mm. Um, and They're know, making themselves subject to having this internal reaction, yeah, particularly so, to and, a show like this. It's a fabulous thing that people still come to look at art. Um, and it's such an important thing, you know. I, 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 I don't know if this is still the stat, but when I used to live in Melbourne, NG, as part of NGV's kind of, you know, funding arguments, more people used to visit the MC, um, NGV to look at art than would go to the MCG to watch AFL football um, annually. So, you know, there, there's... Art is always kind of the thing that gets funded last yeah, and the funding the most crucial, yeah. quickest. Um, but we often forget that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm. Um, and nationally and internationally, it's, you know, a trillion dollar industry. Yeah, I'm looking, I feel like I'm looking at these figures a lot in my work. I'm so lucky to work for Arts Northern Rivers, which advocates for regional practice and regional artists and you know making sure that we can access the same level of opportunities in these regions that we found we find in our metropolitan counterparts and northern rivers creative being an initiative of arts northern rivers is allowing creating a platform for regional artists to exhibit mm. like we are now mm. you know and and i think having this exhibition in this location echoes self and the entire theme of gender and and association um, beautifully as well, having it here. The fact that we're having this conversation in a gallery where people unfortunately aren't caught up to where we are. I mean, I thought I was behind, but Stephen, you said to me once that I'm 90% ahead of the rest of the world, <laughs> which shocked me. Um, There's, and that was in reference to you know, when you were talking about Joe's work and kind of the awakening in terms of difference yeah. and alterity that that offers. Uh, you know, most, I think about my family, sorry family, um, but they're just cultural philistines. And, um, you know, it, it's, they're hopeless <laughs> um, in caring really about the things that we care about. But or having a mind that's open enough to understand that we're changing. Well, they probably culturally. do, but they just don't. Um, and that's, I think, reflective of most people because the conversation can be difficult. And the conversation, yeah. especially around, you know, gender and sexuality, I think the generations coming through now, the younger ones, won't have a problem. Um, mm. It's, you know, my generation and the generation of baby boomers who you know just won't die yet and <laughs> all those kind of things it, it's it's often oh, <laughs> 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 um it, it's but they they're often that's where those conversations can be difficult definitely um because yeah. you know there's things which are ingrained and culturally and individually doesn't mean that there's a problem and individuals can be open and amazing, but when we think culturally, socially, collectively, it, it's, it can be very slow to move. Um, 
society actually takes quite a long time to shift. Yeah. Um, we think things can move fast and it feels like things are moving fast. But, you know, when we look back to what's happened in the 20th century, socially, culturally, globally, the, the shifts are actually much smaller than what we might feel. Mm. Um, I think we're getting better. We're getting a little bit more nimble and, mm. and quicker with technology how that kind of information can spread and change things. But that doesn't mean things are actually changing. Mm. And, the f and for future generations or, or kind of the, the generations that are coming through, like, you know, self is now a, a, a defined a term that, you know, can be about appearance or it can be about surgical changes or it can be about pronouns or it can be about you know an online identity like self is now something that's really been embraced by kind of mm. um, the the new generations and and self now is completely up to the individual to say well this is what this is who myself is mm. yeah. yeah that's exciting. that generational change is so is so visible and you're right Stephen like some and Joe you've mentioned that sometimes the challenging conversations with your family this conversation is so easy for us to have had and I'll have a very different conversation with my child as I would to my father my father hi dad probably <laughs> um yeah unfortunately isn't nowhere near as open as I am so I'm so lucky that I've had been exposed to art to allow me to change my mindset. And I think when art has the power to shift society's ideologies, then that's fucking powerful. And that's all I want to do. It's all I want to talk about. It's all I want to enhance and contribute to. I see my, you know, my eight-year-old nephew who um, plays, you know, in kind of online spaces and, um, you know, he chooses his identity as non-binary, you know, like um, he... He feels the he power act, to that's do right. that. That's right, he age. actively yeah. chooses that. And that's generationally very different from what I was doing when I was eight years old and being given a doll and... Pop culture crying, then you know? wasn't, wasn't surrounded with this. I mean, you look at pop culture now, one of the most popular television shows that everyone's been watching, particularly during lockdown, is Euphoria, where gender diversity is embedded in throughout the entire show um it didn't have access to those things 20 50 years ago whereas now where pop culture and art and contemporary art and contemporary gender is going to influence that societal change and and hugely impactful um in a, in a positive way for um people in regional areas mm -hmm. you know being able to access that because yeah. you know that that is one of the challenges of being in a regional area is this sense of isolation or, you know, I'm the only one kind of, mm. and um, yeah, that's not the case anymore with mm. the kind of pop culture that we have available. I could keep talking to you both for hours, to Let's, be honest, yeah. <laughs> but I am going to have to sadly wrap it up. Um, thank you everyone for tuning in to Let's Talk About Art Baby. We're going to have two more episodes this year. Um, the second one focusing on photography, design and fashion, which is emerging 
particularly within the Northern Rivers region, working closely with Studio Tropico on delivering that one. And the third event is going to be based on experimental arts at Elevator Ari in Lismore. I know I'm really excited for that one. Um, and the expression of interest to be involved in that exhibition is going to be popping out soon as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And before I do wrap up, I just want to give Grafton Regional Gallery a massive yeah. shout out for allowing us to have such a challenging and contemporary exhibition in this space. They have been so supportive of me wanting to have this show, of all the little things I've had here and there, the little questions like, no, I think, think it should be... They're just so adaptive and easy to work with. They have contributed funding to the show as well. You know, they didn't have to do that. Um, so I really want to acknowledge Grafton Regional Gallery for enabling us to have such a progressive conversation. In this. And to you, Ingrid, oh. for um, curating this show. Like, this is a really, you know, progressive, um, challenging show. And and let's talk about Art Baby. Like, yeah. we've, we've, been, we've been wanting to record it and do it for um, a long time. So You've yeah, both made me feel much more at ease throughout this conversation. I feel my power now, but at the start of this, I was crippling. <laughs> uh, so I'm excited for the coming episodes. Um, so thank you both so much, not for just joining me today, but for educating me so much throughout this entire experience. I'm so grateful. And thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for the Thank you very much.